Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. You need to, as Jesus taught us, as Paul reiterates in Colossians 3, set your minds on things above. You have to have a view that goes beyond the temporal of this life. If you get short-sighted, if you can't see beyond the horizon of the next year, the next month, or the next decade, you are going to be an envious person. Welcome to Focal Point. Glad you could join us for part two of a message called Getting Serious About the Counterattack. And as we near the end of our in-depth study of the problem of envy, we're discovering how to guard our thoughts against this insidious and destructive enemy. So today, Pastor Mike Fabares opens the Bible to Psalm 73 to present a powerful reminder why Christians should never envy the world. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. And now here's Pastor Mike with a quick recap as he begins today's message. Number one, you need to make sure God's spirit resides in you. You want the wherewithal to win this fight against envy or any other sin. You need God's spirit in you. Because then you'll get that promise of that wonderful verse. God's spirit will cause you to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. That'll be more and more the pattern and trajectory of your life. Let me take you to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. He's looking back now at a life, as Paul said, who I was before I became a Christian. And it was, it was foolish. It was disobedient. It was a life, he says, we, right? And he's including Titus in this, who's a pastor at this point. Well, before you became a Christian, you were disobedient. You were led astray. You were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days and the expression of the kinds of passions that are against God's rules and precepts are, you have malice, you have envy, hated by others and hating one another. Why? Because everyone's looking out for themselves. Everyone's trying to take these cravings and, and fulfill them. And all of that is what characterizes a non-Christian life. But the Spirit of God's going to change that for people. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. I finally tried to apply enough of the sermons about coveting or envy or strife or whatever it might be, and I, I, I made good progress. My batting average was good one season, and God all of a sudden said, you've qualified. You can now be on the team. It's not what happened. He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That means someone that just doesn't deserve it. Can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can't just try and do good enough by his mercy. He has to save us by the washing of regeneration, that's the word, that means being born again, regeneration and the renewal, what's that? That's the passage we just read, Ezekiel 36, a new heart, new spirit, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's come in, he changes us, he resides within us, who, by the way, how much spirit do you get? Poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that now, here's what Christianity spells, being justified by his grace. You didn't deserve it, it was merciful, it was gracious, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When did that happen? At the moment of our justification, when God declared us righteous, when he said all your sins, right? There's the beginning of our passage in Ezekiel 36, 25. Your sins are forgiven. The cleansing of the pure water on you. It's, it's, it's this picture of cleansing. 
the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He poured out on us richly in Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying, verse 8, is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Titus is a preacher on the island of Crete. He says, I want you to go out there and preach this stuff so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, these good works, are excellent and profitable for people. I assure you that if you could kick envy, you'd look back and say, well, I lived the last season of my life without any envy. I saw that go away. That would be profitable and excellent. That'd be like so good for you. I mean, it would help you in your homes. It would help you in your small groups, help you in your church, help you in your extended family. Some of you help you in your immediate family. It would help you in your neighborhoods. It would help you in your workplace. It would help you in your headspace. It would just help you. It would be excellent and profitable. But what needs to happen for you to get from verse 3 right, to verse 8 is that you have to have an encounter with God's Spirit. It's those who know that they're sinners, admit their sin, confess their sin, repent of their sin. They trust in God to forgive their sins. And then they get a new heart. They get the Spirit of God in them. And then they say, I want to go out and do what God asks me to do, which is where this goes. Right? The excellent and profitable things are the things that I desire to do. I know this is hard stuff, but I'm told to tell you this, verse 15, just to reflect a little bit of a verse that's for pastors and preachers. Verse 15 is to a preacher on Crete in an island where they're not going to applaud him for saying it, but he needs to say it, and the generation people are going to say amen to it, but he's got to say these things, declare them and exhort them and rebuke them with all authority, and he can't let anyone sit there and make him say, well, maybe you're right. Say it with all authority and don't let anyone disregard you. You will not get me to disregard what I'm telling you this morning, that you are a sinner and you will go to hell unless you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You have to believe in God. Put all of your eggs in one basket. Recognize his lordship and the greatness of who God is because the spirit of God then will train you and move you to obey what he has said. That's legalism. It's not legalism. It's the gospel. The gospel of grace trains you to do this. And if you deny that, I'm sorry. Well, then you're believing a false gospel, not the gospel that's in the New Testament, because the good news is, yes, you will be forgiven. But it's like reading Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, and forgetting there's a verse 26 and 27. 26 is a new interior of your life with new desires, and 27 is the power within you, the great warrior of the universe, the Holy Spirit of God driving you to holiness. That's the gospel, and it's the gospel of grace. If you believe that you go to church and you agree with some facts about Christ dying on a cross for you, then you've misunderstood the concept of faith and you're agreeing with the demons about the facts, but you've not put your trust in Christ. So I exhort you and I, 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 I admonish you to put your trust in Christ because this will just be another sermon series that just frustrates you because occasionally you'll try to listen to things and apply them, but your heart will be dead to God and the spirit of God does not empower you to do it and you're not going to do it. You just won't do it. You'll be like that person that says they're going to quit smoking every weekend. I'm just continually stuck in the rut. Spirit of God gets you out of that rut. Is it going to be hard? Yes. World, flesh, and devil, lots of battles. I get it. Will you take a couple steps back here and there? Yeah, you might. But you're going to take steps forward, and you're going to continue to make progress in this thing called sanctification because the Spirit of God guarantees it. I don't say that on my authority. I don't say that based on my experience. I don't say that based on anyone's experience. I say it based on... Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. Spirit of God within you, moving you to obey his precepts, causing you to obey his precepts, and making you careful to keep his rules. Here's one of his rules. Don't live with envy in your life. 
Envying and coveting are wrong. It's one of the big commandments of God. From the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, do not covet what your neighbor has. Instead, Jesus says you've got to love them. Love them, not just like you love yourself. Love them like Christ loved you. And you're supposed to put other people's interests before your own. The world won't applaud that theology. I guarantee you. Make sure God's spirit resides in you. And I say that, and you think, well, I don't know. I thought you assumed we're all Christians. I, 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 I have to say, today, you need to make sure you're saved. Really saved. I just need you to make sure today. At least I want to do all I can to exhort you and admonish you and to let you not disregard me as best I can, to say you need to hear this and make sure you're really a Christian. Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? If so, great. We got the wherewithal within us to do it. Now, here's what the Spirit of God is going to do. As preachers preach the truth of the book that the Spirit wrote, and as the Spirit of God is directing your spirit, he's going to get you to change your perspective, which will allow you to love others as Christ loved us and rejoice with others who rejoice, which is the key. It's the linchpin to all of this. So I need to turn you to Psalm 73 and help guard you from a problem that we will all have, even if you know the truth and the Spirit of God does reside in you. You have to make sure that the Spirit of God has his way in keeping your focus where it needs to be. You need to, as Jesus taught us, as Paul reiterates in Colossians 3, set your minds on things above. You have to have a view that goes beyond the temporal of this life. If you get short-sighted, if you can't see beyond the horizon of the next year, the next month, or the next decade, you are going to be an envious person. This psalm is all about envy, and I want to read it to you. Psalm 73. Let's start here in verse 1. You can see in the superscription, this is a psalm of Asaph, and it starts with a declaration that I hope everyone in the room should agree with theologically. God is good to Israel. In that case, that's the context of the Old Testament in the 9th century B.C., In our case, we'd say God is good to his people, right? Of course, to those who are pure in heart, the people that he's forgiven, those who are right before God, those that are walking in step with the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, God is good to those people, right? You you sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh corruption. You sow to the Spirit, right? To to quote Galatians 5, you you reap from the Spirit eternal life. That's a good, God is good to those who are pure in heart. Now, that would be a great short little psalm, be the shortest psalm in the Bible if that's where it ended, but it doesn't end there. Because this is about envy. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I almost fell flat on my spiritual face. Why? Because I was envious. I was envious. Now think about that. That's the problem. Envy, by the way, messes everything up, including your theology and your relationship with God. I was envious. Now, here's what's weird about this, because most of the things we've talked about throughout this series have been illustrated in my offhanded illustrations about you dealing with another Christian that you're thinking, well, I'd like to be like her. It'd be great if I was like him. And why does God keep giving him advantages that I don't have? Why does she have blessings that I don't get? Why is their family better than mine? Why? We get frustrated, we get bitter, we get resentful, and then we start all the stuff that comes out of envy. That's bad. But when I talk about some godly person in your small group that just does so well and gets all the open doors and she just thinks about dieting and she loses weight and her skin is clear and everything's wonderful for her, that person, that's easy for you to think, yeah, I am to envy that person. But that's not what this passage is about. Same sin, different object. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant of the arrogant, yeah, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And we got to deal with this, and I touched on it briefly last time, but there is a lot of us in this room tempted this week to envy the arrogant, the wicked. Why? 
Well, it's a long poetic list here, starting in verse number four, about how good they have it. I mean, these guys aren't getting sick like I am. They have no pangs until death. I mean, their bodies are fat and sleek, which I know I just said we all value in this day, you know, being slender. But back in the ancient world, if you were poor and down on your luck, you wouldn't be, you're not going to be overweight and on welfare. Not going to happen. If you're poor, you are starving. You're begging for food. Right? You're skinny. You're skin and bones. Well, these people have all the food they want. They're fat and their bodies are stout and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. This is showing their blessings, their temporal blessings. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They're wearing pride and arrogance like, like it's jewelry. It flashes around all the time. Violence covers them as a garment. They're willing to put anyone down. They talk with, with harsh words. They're ready to throw out some harsh tweets anytime they want. Right? Their eyes, speaking of how much they've got, I mean, they got so much stuff. They got more cars than they can fit in their garage. Right? They got more square footage than they can even, even live in. They got more fat than can fit in their heads, right? Their their eyes are swelling out because of fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. I mean, they're foolish. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, right? They turn their, their words toward Christianity and theism and God. Their tongue, look at this, struts through the earth. Now think about the people that sit on shows, mocking God, mocking his standards, mocking his word. Well, they get into limousines and get taken to the best hotels and the best restaurants. They've got bank accounts that are huge. Right? They get on Netflix and do their comedy specials and talk about their millions and millions of dollars they have at the bank. Right? They're the NBA stars that stand up there and do interviews, and they live flagrant lives, immoral lives. And everyone applauds, and when they walk in the room, kids run up and want their autograph. They have all the things that we, as just in our lives, we would think, well, that would be great to have some of that. Be good. I'm just barely making the rent. I can't even find an affordable house in Orange County. And these guys have everything, and yet they hate God. They're snarky, and they're mean, and they're critical, and they're godless, and they applaud people that do evil things. That's what happens in the world. Therefore, as people turn to them, right? These arrogant, wicked people, they walk in a room, everyone turns to them, they find no fault in them. They praise them, give them accolades. They're wonderful. They're great. They overlook their faults. And they say, when they talk about God, and we start talking about God's going to judge, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? He doesn't seem to be uh, too upset with my endorsements and the things that I'm for and all the causes I'm after, because you know what? If he was against them, I suppose I wouldn't have all this blessing. I'm not being zapped by your God. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, here's the problem. I look at my own life. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. And I'm saying no to stuff. I'm willing to take a hit at work. I'm willing to say, no, this is wrong because God said it's wrong. No, that doesn't honor God. I'm willing to say things that just get me in trouble. I sit here and try and do the right thing. I've washed my hands in innocence. I've said, I'm not going to do that. I try to get all the dirt and the moral filth off of my life. And all day long, guess what? I get beat up. I get rebuked every morning for that. If I go to the workroom at work and I start talking about God's truth or God's rules for anything, right? I get beat up. Not to mention when I open the Bible and every morning the Bible rebukes me for my sin. It's a mirror that shows me what's wrong with myself. And it's like a two-edged sword that cuts into my conscience and separates my thoughts and intentions. And I feel like, oh God, I got so much to work on in my life. I'm such a sinner. I need your grace and your mercy. It's like every day I'm getting beat up. Well, if I had said thus, 
right? I'm going to speak like that. If I had said, I will speak like this, this, I'm going to be affirmed in this thought. Now I'm feeling these thoughts, but if I said, this is my thought life, this is how I stand. I stand this way, that it really stinks to be an innocent, holy follower of God. I don't like it. And we lose. The good guys are losing and the bad guys are winning. Well, then I would have uh, betrayed a generation of your children. All the people that are living godly lives, I would have betrayed them. I would have gone out there advocating for the other side. If it's better to live as a non-Christian, it's better to live an unfettered life from the moral strictures of the Bible. Well, then, you know, I would have betrayed everybody who's being faithful to the Bible. When I thought how to understand this, verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Well, that's certainly how you've written the psalm, Asaph. It's wearisome. Here's a good word for you. Five letters. Verse 16, until something changed. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then... I discerned their end. Where do you think the celebrities of our culture that are shining God on with everything they say, that are mocking God's law, they're their own boss. They do what they want. Well, Asaph goes to church. He goes into the temple courts in Jerusalem. He hears the scrolls being read. He hears people praising God from the the, the songs of the redeemed. And he goes, oh yeah, that doesn't end well for them. You've set them in slippery places. I learned that when I went to church. You'll make them fall to ruin. I know that. This isn't going to end well for them. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're they're swept away utterly by terrors. They don't die well. Non-Christians do not die well. They die in terror. Because it's appointed in the man once to die, and then comes the judgment. They face their God, and they grip onto this life, because that's all they've got. Like a dream when one awakes. Because that's all this is. The arrogant, wicked life that disregards God and his law, those are like people that are dreaming a, a, a dream. It's crazy. And then God comes into to light. They see God. They meet their maker. When you rouse yourself, when you stand before your creatures, you despise them as phantoms, right? Boop, there you go. You've acted like I don't exist. Now I'm going to act like you don't exist. Into outer darkness where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing. You reject me. You reject the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the source of eternal life. Okay. You get what you want now. You enjoy it a lot here on earth just to quote Jesus in his parable about the rich man. Now you're going to suffer. This is the end of your life. And you're going to live it in the second death. Oh, there's no annihilation. There's conscious torment you're going to despise them as phantoms. They'll be into outer darkness. They won't see the light of the gospel or the king of the gospel. Asaph says, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked, I was, I was, it was like I was penetrated by a knife blade in my heart. By the way, you want a good definition of what envy looks like? That's it, an embittered heart, a heart that's, that's wounded. What did I act like when I thought the way I was thinking there in verses 1 through 15? Well, you were thinking like a brute like a knuckle-dragging fool. You were ignorant. You weren't thinking of the big picture. He says to God, I was like a beast before. You're like like an animal, just instinctive. I I looked around and it looked like I should sniff it or eat it. I did it. I just, I wasn't even thinking straight. I I wasn't thinking about the future. Like your dog, you go to him, your dog, your dog's not thinking about retirement. Your dog's just, he's living in retirement, perpetual retirement. He's just doing whatever he wants. He doesn't think about any of that. He doesn't contemplate. He doesn't plan. And that's the point. Christian life that's short-sighted, it's foolish, it's brutish, it's ignorant, it's, it's like a dog. Nevertheless, when I think about it now, without ignorance, without dragging my knuckles around as a fool, I 
recognize what I have that they don't have. I don't have the riches. I don't have the applause. I don't have people patting me on the back. I don't have microphones shoved in my face. I don't have kids running up to get my autograph. I don't have any of the things they have. I don't have the cars parked in the driveway that they have. I don't have all the stuff that they have and that I've been so envious of, but I have you. I'm continually with you. And you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, if I want to think about the big picture, you receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? I mean, you want the prize of everything? It's meeting my maker. It's being in sync with my creator. There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Well, I've been desiring a lot of things. I've been desiring and coveting what my neighbor has, my neighbor's wife, my neighbor's house, my neighbor's stuff. Ridiculous. What I need to desire is the one that matters. Like Augustine said, I have a desire that cannot be met by anything else. My Heart really is restless until it finds rest in you. And here's Asaph coming to that realization. My flesh and my heart may fail. I may live with deprivation between now and the time of my death, but God is the strength of my heart and is my portion, my inheritance. He's all that I need forever. For behold, those who are far from you, now I got to remember this, for all those that I was envying, they shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Number two in your alley, you need to guard yourself from short-sightedness. You need to guard yourself from the kind of temporal short-sightedness that says, if the bad guys seem to be winning, I don't know why I'm trying to be a good guy. I don't know why I'm saying no to sin and putting to death the deeds of the flesh. I don't get why I would live by this standard if it's not paying off now. Well, then you're not seeing the things you should see. You're not seeing the long view of things. You're not looking at the things that matter that are eternal and the things you see are not eternal. The cars in the driveway, the accolades and the pleasures and all the prosperity of the wicked, none of that lasts. You've got to see that. You should think like Christ thought, which by the way, here's a good passage for you. Isaiah chapter 11. The prophet looked forward as God's spirit gave him utterance and said, there's coming a branch from the root of Jesse. And that king is going to come. And he's going to be a signal to the peoples. I mean, that's a great prophecy there in Isaiah 11. But in verse number three, he says, to get to the bottom of the verse, he says, he's not going to judge by what his eye sees. He's not going to judge by what his ear hears. Verse three starts with this way. He's going to judge and value the fear of the Lord. The God you can't see, the invisible God that dwells in unapproachable light, the God you cannot see, that can't be seen, has never been seen, the God that you're one day going to face at the judgment. That's the God that the Messiah is going to care about. I'm going to see everything in light of that. You're listening to Focal Point and part two of a message from Pastor Mike Fabares called Getting Serious About the Counterattack. And tomorrow we'll wrap up this important series about envy. Over the past few weeks, Pastor Mike has really opened our eyes to the impact of envy in our personal relationships and in society at large, and he's giving us the tools we need to remove it from our lives. Now, if you missed any of the outstanding messages in this series, simply go to focalpointradio.org or download the Focal Point app to listen anytime. And to prepare for these messages, Pastor Mike conducted a thorough study of the causes and effects of envy in our world today, and he just released his brand new book on this topic. Pastor Mike, why don't you share a little more about your latest book? Yeah, Dave, it's called Envy, A Big Problem You Didn't Know You Had. 
You know, we're quick to point out the obvious sin around us, but we're less likely to identify or even notice the subtle, widespread sin that's lurking just inside, this sin called envy. But if we let this sin go unchecked, there's going to be some serious internal, relational, and even societal costs. So there's a good chance you're already suffering from some effects and consequences of this sin. So I hope you will get a copy of my new book, called Envy, a big problem you didn't know you had. We're going to explore the causes and the consequences of envy, and I'll offer biblical hope and practical guidance to help you live with satisfaction and contentment. Thanks, Pastor Mike. You can get a copy of this brand new book right away when you make a generous donation to Focal Point today. It's easy to give online at focalpointradio.org or by calling us at 888-320-5885. Again, that's 888-320-5885. We'll send you Pastor Mike's latest book as our way of saying thanks for your donation. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us tomorrow to hear the final message in this series. Hear the conclusion of the message called Getting Serious About the Counterattack, Tuesday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. Ever wish you could corner your pastor and challenge him with your toughest questions about the Bible, about faith? Well, now you can. Send me your questions. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click on Ask Pastor Mike. Or send me a note on facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. I can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.